0: Sounding Board, the monthly podcast for new and classic music discussions since 2016. Follow the team on Twitter and Facebook at Sounding Board 69. Welcome to the fourth of the Sounding Board Interview Podcasts. I'm Rob Langham and today I'm delighted to air the results of a chat I had with Matthew Worley, who's Professor of History at Reading University and author of a new book, No Future, Punk, Politics and British Youth Culture, 1976-1984. to It's an engrossing account of how music and punk in particular interacted with society at what was a turbulent time indeed in Great Britain. The book is published by Cambridge University Press and it's available widely as well as in all the proverbial good bookshops. Matt was kind enough to chat about the book and the punk and post-punk eras and the results can be heard after this break. Hi Matt, good to speak to you. Tell us a bit more about the book No Future and what gave you the idea in the first place?
1: Well, the idea from the book was to write a history of punk that wasn't simply so-and-so joined a band in 1975 and they went on and did this and then the new bass player came in, that it was an attempt to kind of contextualise it really, to historicise punk. Because what I always found interesting about punk from when I grew up with it and then thinking back on it was how it seemed to very much tap into moments of the time, historical themes of the time, social economics, culture, politics, all those things that make life uh, intriguing were kind of engaged with through through punk. So that that was the reasoning, really. And also because I thought lots has been written about punk, but it's often a very similar narrative or it's people's kind of memoirs and looking back and kind of uh, reminiscing about it, which is fine and really interesting. But there's only so many times you can kind of hear those stories. So I wanted to go back and stop punk being kind of simply absorbed into this kind of rock and roll trajectory where it just became another kind of blip on the map, you know, mods and glam, and then there's punk, and then there's new romantics, and then there's rave or whatever, to say, well, actually, no, this period was quite interesting because of how diverse punk's influence became and how it, it really tapped into changes that were ongoing in Britain and maybe the world at the time as well.
0: Yeah, um, I was going to ask you actually my next mm-hmm. question you pretty much already answered it which is why 1976 to 1984 is such a fertile area for a study mm. why did you extend the time frame to the latter date in particular because that's probably considered a little bit after punk
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean it, punk's one of those contested terms isn't it? Yeah. everyone has their own different definition uh, of it and I tried to not get too bogged down in, in, in trying to define it as an absolute thing which I don't think you really can do so I looked at the different ways in which people interpreted interpreted it and tried to bring out some themes that cut across it. And I kind of thought, really, that the end date was defined by George Orwell, really, in 1984 being something, a kind of a, a trope that runs through punk from quite early on, from the Clash song 1977 and the end of that, where the Clash countdown to 1984... And um, I think punk was always thinking about clampdowns and uh, kind of the state kind of coming to get you that kind of authoritarian totalitarian fear of the future crass he 's setting up their record label that counted down to eighty four and the more you look, you suddenly see George Orwell or Winston Smith or 1984 cropping up in songs by the jam or whatever. And so it's, it kind of, I kind of thought, well, yeah, well, that's, and it's an arbitrary end, but it was an end that kind of made sense within my notion of, a, of, OK, people think there's no future and they're going to do something about it. Why do they think that? Well, one reason they, there was a kind of feeling of that time with this kind of Orwellian date looming in the future, which kind of intensifies in the 1980s with Margaret Thatcher for, for many people.
0: Yeah, I mean, I actually did uh, 1984 at school, um, Mm -hmm. which I think a lot of people did. I I think we're roughly the same age. Yeah, I did it at school. Yeah.
1: It kind of was quite prescient. (laughs)
0: Yes, I remember the film as well came Mm. out, didn't it, with the Eurythmics involved and that kind of thing, which Mm. um, wasn't, I don't think, that great a soundtrack. Mm. I think certainly (laughs) Pump came up with better music. (laughs) Just in researching the book, which is meticulously researched, I have Mm. to say, there's a lot of big bibliography and you really hunted down a lot of stuff that I didn't know about and I'm sure a lot of people haven't heard of, so Mm. do go and read the book, everyone. Were there any especially engaging and helpful interviewees for the book? Mm. Well, what I did...
1: I mean, yeah, absolutely, I really wanted to to not put those quotes we've all seen a hundred times. There's one or two familiar phrases in there and that, but I wanted to go back and look at the material that would what people said at the time. Look at fanzines, look at the music press interviews, documentaries that were made in the seventies and early eighties about punk at the time. So the idea was you got a flavour of the language that was used there and then and the the kind of priorities that people had there and then, their concerns, anxieties, beliefs and all that kind of stuff. So it's kind of hopefully the the, the quotes i use and the people i kind of uh, reference uh, are people who are kind of the, who what they're saying sort of resonant of the time but i did go and talk to lots of people as well what i didn't do is use interviews as a as part of the book narrative what i did was i got to meet lots of people and i used to and i'd send them bits of the book and say is that all does that sound about right um, is that valid is that True, is that not? Is that, have I got the wrong end of the stick there? And I get feedback on that. And I asked lots of people, lots of different things. The people who were particularly useful, or useful, were generous and really interesting. Was um, Steve Ignorant from Crass, who was brilliant, he was really helpful and fascinating. John Savage was really good with sort of kind of hidden, lost materials and fanzines and helping me source things like that, and, and just giving me little insights on the on the on the time. Gary Bushell was very helpful about some of the stuff on the kind of oi side. Again, linking me up with people like Tom McCourt from The Foreskins and Lol Pryor who managed the business. So I could kind of talk to people. People like that. Linda Sterling was really helpful, let me use some of her images and I just ran past her what I'd written about Linda and Ludus and she kind of kind of gave me the kind of thumbs up, I hope, on on, on what all that was about. So yeah, so lots lots and lots of people. And people also like chap I get to, I've got to know very well now Chris Lowe, he's always a fanzine collector. He's got thousands of fanzines who, uh, you know, kind of let me kind of rifle through some of the stuff that a lot of it I'd never seen before, kind of obscure fanzines from here, there, and every, everywhere. Tim Wells, who was a ranter poet, there was loads of people, and they were all really generous with their time and really helpful, and just hopefully making me be able to write a book that people who passed through those years in their kind of formative age can go yeah no okay I, I i get that there was through facebook and i ran something around past mark perry and mark perry said that the book made him think about things he hadn't thought about for a long time and that meant a lot to me because uh i'm a big admirer of atv and mark perry and sniffing glue and all that and for and if he if for him to feel like that about reading the book meant i i must have got something right i hope
0: Oh, I think so, I mean you certainly unearthed some new findings which I think as a historian is key mm. isn't mm-hmm. it you're, you're always being asked to sort of come up with new things Yeah, and it's certainly, your answer there has really summed up my feeling in reading the book that it's a book, punk isn't just about music is mm. it? it's about society, culture, sort of publishing, all, all mm. sorts of elements And yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a
1: bit kind of work, I kind of, it was more I mean punk rock is, uh, you know, it's, it's, it was understood as and is understood still as a musical genre but punk can embrace a lot more things It's a way of doing something a process of, of doing something it means you can kind of spread your net a lot wider if you if you don't stick to just bands with a guitar bass and drums playing very fast you can start thinking about other kind of cr- creativities and cultural forms that have something of the punk about them which that again going back to an earlier question which that period just seemed to absolutely become teeming with people taking this idea and running off in lots of different direct, really interesting directions whether it's an independent label or a fanzine or an experimental type of music or having something to say or just feeling you could have something to say and that impetus to you know i don't like the music on the radio so i'll form my own band you know, that, that gut instinct that it, to something's not right so i'll do something about it
0: yeah i mean i think simon reynolds book rip it up and start again i think that's a classic that that I read a few years ago, and I remember getting so many tips from it, and mm. like going away and hunting down stuff like Young Marble Giants, yeah. and early Squizzy Politi, and mm-hmm. this kind of thing. And, and and you know that's you know there was just so much, particularly beyond that first flowering, mm-hmm. when you got into the New Wave era again, an umbrella term, but yeah, but yeah, really fantastic.
1: Yeah, and you know lots of people who um, at the time didn't stop wanting to be called punk because they felt being boxed in by it, but were evidently in- informed. By that moment and that, by that impetus, it, it gave them to do what they wanted to do and, and do something different and or have some have have something to
0: say. You know. Great. Um, well, you mentioned Gary Bushel, Busher, who's later mm-hmm. been demonised as a tabloid columnist. Mm-hmm. Is it fair to view him as a contradictory figure? I mean, obviously, I I must admit, it was a, I knew he'd been involved a little bit mm-hmm. in. In OI and early on, and as a journalist, but uh, you know, I wasn't quite aware of how strong a contribution he'd made. I mean, mm. it's an interesting character. Yeah,
1: I mean, Gary's interesting because his journey through the late seventies into the early eighties into him becoming this kind of tabloid character uh, in the in the nineteen eighties is interesting and reflects some of the changes that were going on at the time. This the end of the post war consensus, the emergence of of Thatcherism, and the kind of Breakdown of the old left and the emergence of a of a, a new left and different priorities forming around politics and all things like that. Um, what we now understand as deindustrialisation kicking in, and Bushell moves from being in in the Socialist Workers Party and being hard on on the left to somebody who's then accused of being sympathetic to the far right to someone who, in 1983, is advocating everyone vote Labour in the in the 1983 election, supporting. Michael Foote and also backs the Arthur Scargill to then leaving all that behind joining the Sun and all that kind of stuff but for you know and whatever people it's up to people what they think about those politics and that trajectory but what's interesting I guess is that for a long time Gary Bushel writing in Sounds was one of the few people who kind of held fast this idea of punk as this working class protest and you know a vehicle for people to kind of shout back against things that were kind of pressing them or or annoying them or whatever and also a way of establishing a particular cultural identity a kind of working class identity so it's interesting stuff and he is actually a very good writer he writes well which is why he got up so many people's noses because they couldn't just dismiss it as he doesn't know what he's talking about he he touched nerves i think sometimes and yeah no he is an interesting character but there were loads of great writers around that time you know vivian goldman Uh, I used to like well I was a bit too young to read Jane Suck's stuff when she was writing it but when I was reading back on all those early sounds from 77 to 78 just her writing was really vivid and and brilliant there's a lot of people who become quite controversial figures because Judy Birchall and Tony Parsons also of course helped define their punk trajectory and what we understand as punk
0: well I should point you in the direction at this point to our last regular episode in which Mm -hmm. we discussed the decline of the NME available through um, Podbean and iTunes etc but You touched on it a little bit there. I mean, another part of your research as a history academic is into the far-right and Mm -hmm. far-right movements in the UK, and you've also edited a book for Outledge recently. Mm -hmm. How much did this research inform the volume? And I'm thinking... Of the many mentions you make of the likes of Rock Against Racism, even yeah. Rock Against Communism, which mm-hmm. I'd never heard of, <laughs> Screwdriver, yeah. ever controversial topic, and, and, no. and other things. I mean, how much did that come into it?
1: Yeah, no, I mean, there's a, a whole chapter, and it's based on an article I had published uh, a while back, really, looking at the way in which political organisations on the left and the right tried to claim punk uh, for themselves or for their politics. And this is always difficult to do because, as we said earlier, punk's very contested, it can mean lots of different things and also I think uh, running through a lot of punk was a kind of sense that politics were either irrelevant or had run their course that those old, the old ways of doing things were no no longer relevant with the far right stuff that was partly in there because I didn't I'm kind of aware of that kind of mythologising of punk as being inherently progressive and anti-racist. Of course, lots of people in punk were doing things for great reasons and were anti-racist, but there was also... There's a dark heart at punk as well, You know, whether it's Malcolm McLaren putting the Cambridge rapist on his T-shirt or some of the racist language that comes out of it, or being a breeding ground for bands like Screwdriver to emerge and develop their kind of white noise lineage of uh, you know punk rock it's what they do they play punk rock whether we like it or not and i spent a lot of time on rock against racism and all the kind of good work that was done kind of fighting the national front and all that but there was a response to it within a kind of a punk culture which was first of all very minimal with the rock against communism in its initial phase up in leeds and then came down to london and then ultimately, you, you've got a thing that's still going around the world today—blood and honor—and all that, all that kind of bonehead, you know, Nazi rock and roll. Well, it's gone a bit folky, and it's really heavy metal nowadays, I think. But you know, it's part of the story, and it's something. What I wanted to do with the book was not kind of pretend everything was, yeah, great and right on. There were lots of quite nasty things going on about there, which, in some ways, is part of what makes punk interesting because it's—it it's was a—it was it was going into dark places really and trying to grapple with fundamental changes ongoing in Britain and the world at the time and sometimes the answers that some people come up with aren't the ones that you necessarily want to want to hear.
0: No, I mean, it's a hard thing to control. I mean, on this point, it seems to me that one of the strands that was most appealing about particularly New Wave and early punk was two-tone, mm-hmm. very exciting musical outpouring and, you know, particularly... A, found it attractive because it sort of crossed the racial divide with bands Hmm. like The Selector and The Specials. And is it a bit of a pity that this was such a short-lived thing? Because since, there doesn't seem to have been so much along those lines. It's a
1: funny thing too, because, yeah, I I was... uh... Nine in nineteen eighty, and one of the first things I think I ever bought was first Specials album, and the first Madness album. A friend of mine had the first Selector album; and he taped that for me, and you know we were all really, really into it. And I agree, it's, a, it's an amazing moment, and you know that you know very much seen at the time as an amalgam of punk and ska, really, or early reggae at least. That, you know turned into something new and very British and multicultural, and it was for a very short time, seventy nine to eighty one, really. And everyone looks back and loves Two and yet no one's really managed to do something similar again. I guess its spirit lives on, and it lives on through the musics that followed, whether a lot of the stuff that came out of Bristol at the end of the eighties and the nineties, drum and bass and things like that are kind of black and white. Often you wouldn't know who the kind of race of the person making those records, which is all to the good, I kind of think because it kind of begins to break down those kind of artificial divides really so i think the spirit of two-tone lives on it even if the the music itself has never really kind of been replicated or 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 read maybe just the people at the time just did it so well we don't need to
0: yes well possibly but you make a good point (coughs) because i think you could look at an artist like burial and the dubstep thing and as you say it's uh, it's a massive attack and yeah 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 so yes yeah really interesting i mean another slightly divisive figure is paul weller i mean his Mm. current image perhaps a bit unfairly portrays him as something of a crotchety traditionalist and, mm-hmm. and sort of you know with a i think his solo work generally is seen as a sort of fairly conservative musically but i mean i was a big jam fan mm-hmm. when i was growing up and i'm always telling people who are a bit younger than me you know mm-hmm. go and listen to the jam because they are really really good mm-hmm. full of energy and urgency i mean where, where do you think the jam stand in the musical pantheon
1: i like talk about them a fair bit in the book and again they're really interesting because they come up at the same time as punk they weren't that happy with the term punk he preferred new wave and he saw new new wave as being a kind of young you know teenagers making music rather than this aging constituency of rock and rock and rollers you can't play rock and roll with a beer gut was one of his quotes from from the time they were kind of outsiders they weren't part of the inner circle but they immediately lots of people absolutely loved the jam for their energy and for the the noise they made there's all the kind of question about their politics early on, early interviews where they sound a bit kind of young, well basically said they'd vote Tory because it can't get any worse <clears throat> and then Weller becoming very left wing and supporting CND and later on Red Wedge and all that so fascinating. Again it's really interesting watching him essentially grow up really from being, what is he, 17 and 77 or something like that and developing his ideas and becoming, I still think certainly in the jam period one of the best lyricists this country's ever kind of produced really in the you know, you read the lyrics for something like Town Called Malice or Funeral Pyre or Going Underground, and that's as close to getting a real sense of, certainly as I remember it, what it felt like to be around it in, in that period. Those songs and those lyrics feel like the time, and I think he was great at capturing capturing that. You know, he's a, a brilliant lyricist, the jam. So, again, you know, the, the whole, because of the mod image, were they punk? Were they punk? Were, I, I, i don't really care really about those kind of debates really they were a great band who said great things and were a lot more experimental than a lot of people give them credit for at the time when you listen to sound effects for example they're bringing in ideas that they've obviously taking from people like gang of four and things like scrape away and by the time of the the final album they're bringing in the kind of there's a kind of pig bag feeling to some of the songs like precious isn't there and stuff like that you know the they were doing, they were they were doing great things, and they, in a way, the fact they split up when they did was brilliant, really, because they just leave you with this wonderful canon of uh, six great albums and and then one of the best runs of singles outside of people at like Buzzcocks and uh, maybe the Smiths uh, yeah. that, from that period.
0: Yeah, I remember, but I think I'm right in this. <coughs> I mean, someone will correct me on Twitter with this, but Beat Surrender. I seem to remember it going in pretty high in the charts and being on top of the pops, and that was one of the first times I yeah. was exposed to them. And yeah, I mean, it was, it really did sum things up. I mean, maybe that's because I came from a small Berkshire town mm. and they were from Woking, which isn't that far away. And, and and that was another thing about punk, wasn't it? A lot of the protagonists came from, I mean, it was The Sound of the Suburbs, was, yeah. it, was the name of the song, wasn't it? Mm. I can't remember who that was and by. The members. The members, that's, that's right. right. Yeah. And that just kind of summed it up a bit. Yeah. Because
1: yeah. punk, hap- you know, there's this kind of little nucleus of something happening around the pistols and you've got the clash and that kind of network that comes out. But once it, travels out once it becomes a public thing it's then picked up by all these people out in the provinces and the suburbs and you know for I guess for some of the inner circle that's when it all go, yeah, that's the end of it and they don't you know there's a kind of they would never understood it, they got it all wrong but for me I think it's really interesting when people pick up on something that's had a cultural impact and turn it into their own thing and can make sense of it and do something with it, whether it's forming a band, whether it's writing a fanzine, whether it's starting a record label, whether it's put, putting on a gig, whether it's just having two or three years of your life that are more exciting than they would have been had you not adopted punk as some kind of identity or or something you could relate to. And the kind of provincialness of punk is one of its great things, I think, rather than a, a weakness. I'm, I like the more kind of out of the way it is, the idea of the one punk in the village kind of... Trying to find someone else who can who will listen to these records with them is a, a brilliant thing. I think a lot of things that people from smaller places probably uh, relate to.
0: Yeah, I mean, on that point, I'm wondering whether <coughs> I'm sure you have. You've probably seen Oil City Confidential, yeah. the Dr. Feelgood documentary, yeah, which is great. at Canby Island, which is, you know, I mean, they were very early, weren't they? They're really seen as one of the kind of trailblazers, mm-hmm. but that is, yeah, a great watch, I think. Yeah, you it's know, a brilliant thought. Really I mean, interesting. Yeah, I mean,
1: it's just that you can kind of, when you look back on it, I mean, at the time, this idea like, you know, punk appeared to this brand new thing, there's the kind of myth of year zero and all that. And the further away you get, the more you can look back and you can see its precedence and what was going to inform it and things like that. One thing about Dr. Feelgood, absolutely, I think they were an influence on a lot of people, but it's a classic example of a band that would just, relative to a lot of the people who would become punks, were getting on a bit. They were old. And I think. In was the idea yeah these, these bands are great and they did great things but I'm 16 17 and I want to be seeing people my age on stage not watching people let's say Elder Brothers yes, yeah. older <laughs> on stage and, stage
0: and for our Oxford listeners yeah. I think there are quite a few Wilco Johnson's actually playing at the O2 I think quite soon so yeah. um, look out for that one we're going to take a quick break now and I'll come back and ask Matt some questions <laughs> Back, everyone. Uh, coming back to the politics, you mentioned it early on. Margaret Thatcher obviously took over as Prime Minister in 1979, which is sort of roughly halfway mm-hmm. through the period looked after by the book. I mean, did that intensify the atmosphere of protest in punk, would you say?
1: Yeah, you get a kind of rebirth of uh, a very kind of, I guess, your hardcore punk bands and the kind of the, the, the context for your anarcho bands like Crass, who really go to war with Thatcher and everything she stands for. At that time, it's important that you know punk begins in the in the middle of the seventies under a under a Labour government, and something is going awry, or is perceived to be going awry, and people are responding to it. Thatcher is one response. Punk was another response. I'm sure you you could all pick out other responses to this kind of social, economic, and political change of of the time. But once I think Margaret Thatcher kicks in, uh, 1979-80. And then you've got the riots of 81 and the Falklands War and the kind of controversies that reverberate around that. Miner's Strike, Battle of the Beanfield, you know, a real kind of... People talk about the 70s being a kind of decade of conflict, but the 80s were just as conflicted and just as violent as the 1970s. I think the difference was the, the state were on top in the 1980s, where in the 1970s it looked like the state was somehow falling away which was created that kind of sense of it's the anarchy isn't it in anarchy in the UK so yeah so I think Margaret Thatcher just became as well this totem figure that whatever strand of punk you were or however much you were influenced by punk you're going to have to look long and hard to find a a kind of at the time a kind of punk record in support of Margaret Thatcher she seemed to embody everything that punk was railing. Reigning against. No doubt there are exceptions to that rule, and quite a well. lot of punks become <laughs> conservatives. But at the time, it, you'd be hard hard pushed, I would say.
0: Yes, and the latter part of the period, <coughs> once Thatcher consolidated her position post the Falklands War, saw the likes of Billy Bragg, mm-hmm. Paul Weller, as you mentioned, and the Redskins emerge as, as part of this kind of red wedge. Yeah. And then there was a council collective. I don't mm-hmm. remember that single, yeah. I remember. Yeah. I mean, how would you reflect on that era mm. now?
1: I think it's really, I mean all those people come through punk who, were, you know, they, they, they start to change the music there was an idea, there was a conversation at the time that one of the problems with punk was that it it reaffirmed your your oppression as it were you know, you're just being angry all the time you're singing about how rubbish everything is you're making records that are kind of angry and are based around two or three chords what you're doing is reaffirming your problem you're not solving it and so you get quite a lot of this was quite a lot of rhetoric about this at the time. So instead of doing that, you begin to have different musical forms, but you still want to keep the political message in it. So you know, the jam becomes the style council. The Redskins adopt a far more kind of Motown, uh, punky Motown sound, and people like Dexy's Soul and all that kind of stuff. Um, Billy Bragg takes a kind of folk route, but still with a kind of punk impulse. At the, something. You can recognise that he comes from punk even when he does what he does. But they're going off in a different way. And I think, and there's been a recent book out by Daniel Rachel who writes about Rock Against Racism, Two Tone, and Red Wedge. And by the end of the book, it's really interesting, lots of great interviews and that. By the end of that, you're kind of thinking, Guy, if you read this, you'd think Red Wedge had won. But of course, they didn't win at all. And 87 was a devastating blow to anyone of that political persuasion. And I've always got a sense that. (laughs) <laughs> after, the, after the miners' strike there was a sense and particularly after the 87 election there's a feeling of uh, we've we've kind of lost this and where do we go now And I think for a lot of people it's a case of um, giving up for a lot of people say we'll you know we'll just keep plugging away and other people kind of sort we'll put, uh, put our energies into into other things but something seems to change what changed culturally is of course the events of dance culture and rave and all that kind of stuff which takes diy and all that into a completely different
0: i guess there was a <laughs> maybe people were treated into hedonism did they a little bit a little individualism. bit individualism yeah. yeah there's a
1: and also <clears throat> i've been thinking about this a lot recently There certainly is an element that we'll will just get out of it yeah you know because mm. nothing's going to change for the best so we might as well just enjoy mm. ourselves Fair enough. And there's also the kind of, you begin to see a nostalgia in the kind of independence in the indie scene. It's partly there in Billy Bragg, uh, um, channeling the spirit of a kind of Woody Guthrie kind of folk singer type. It's there in the Pogues, you know, going from being, Shame Again, going from being in the punk band to a band, Irish traditional songs. It's there in the Smiths with their covers harking back to the 50s and the 60s, a moment when. Possibly, you know, the working class were becoming more visible, and their influence was more kind of tangible, coming through. You know, pop music opening the world up, full employment, education becoming more accessible, and a kind of nostalgia for a time that seemed to have a moment that was getting closed down rather than continuing to open up. Even the music, the kind of what becomes uh, archetypal indie music, was kind of harking back to a, a kind of pop moment that had gone Beatles and Stones and a classic classicism of the 60s which i guess reaches its kind of peak when you get into the Britpop pop thing in the 1990s which has now come to define an indie which is very different to the indie of the 1980s so i think there was a kind of there's a cultural retreat go, goes on in the in parts of youth culture in the 1980s but also there's also the embrace of hip-hop and new technologies which means Things move on in a very kind of futuristic, technologically advanced direction as well. But in the kind of guitar, rock and roll lineage, I guess, things, I think, begin to look a bit more backwards rather than forward.
0: Yeah, I seem to remember the birds were you know, a very strong influence on yeah. C86 and whole which jammy. I loved because I was the age for it. But, mm-hmm. but yeah, I mean, just a quick question on America as well. Just obviously, you had a parallel history mm-hmm. of punk, which started, I guess, with. CBGBs and the Ramones, and then moved all the way through, and then arguably, you know, Fugazi and others mm-hmm. in the 80s. I mean, are there, can you see some of the currents that you explore yeah. in the book present there?
1: I mean, I, I kind of, when I started writing the book, I thought oh, I, a lot of things here are happening in America and also in France and in Germany. There's lots of these parallel histories going on. I made the decision to keep my very British focus just because I just thought I can't, I won't be able to manage it if, if, I, if I do that. But yeah, no, there are similar things. I mean, I always think when you, I, you talk about the sense of Britain in the mid-1970s that is often associated with, particularly with a lyric like God Save the Queen or Anarchy in the UK and Britain kind of in some kind of moment of crisis and sense of decline and you know the, the corrugated iron and broken bottles and graffiti on the walls and then you think of New York going through a similar kind of process at the time there's something parallel going going on there and then punk evolving through, into its different ways its experimental no-wave in America being a bit similar to our kind of post-punk or our industrial cultures, which is crossovers. And then there's a, America goes hardcore as ours get more thrashier. And there's the more experimental bands that come out of all that. So, yeah, there's a, and the independent labels and the fanzine. So there's these parallels going on. And, uh, yeah, I mean, Fugazi, I wouldn't really call them the American crass. That's a bit too clunky a, a comparison. But there is a kind of comparison in terms of we're going to be independent we're going to do it our own way we're going to try and bypass the structures as much as much as we can so there are parallels and crossovers to mm. be made i think america's more rock and roll history means that that kind of music keeps getting rebirthed in america in ways that it doesn't quite hear we've we've embraced the more kind of dance side of things or technological side of things a bit more
0: yeah perhaps yeah. but well, which archival sources, magazines and fanzines were most important in helping with the study? I think, I mean, you've mentioned fanzines as being quite... Yeah, a fanzines were really too. important.
1: Yeah, uh, Something I want to do more on is write about the fanzines. But I love fanzines because they've written bang in the moment without any thought to posterity. They're capturing what somebody thought and felt at that moment in that particular time. And then the music press was really important as well. It's more thoughtful reflections on it often and you can get a sense of... Uh, Trends and writers' opinions, and these were important because a million people are reading the music press, and they're, they're getting, and the readers are getting in part their understanding of the culture through the interpretations of the journalists, which is why people like Gary Bushel or Paul Morley or Carol Clark or whatever are important. But in the fanzines, you get a kind of alternative voice to all that. So people who were scoffed at in the uh, music press. Adam and the Ants, say in the late 1970s are loved in a lot of the fanzines and given loads of attention. A band who were, you know, a big band, a of a lot of punks, UK DK featured in sounds every now and again, but of yeah, the fanzines are covering them a lot. Bands that are off the radar in the mainstream press, Six Minute War, you know, you can find brilliant interviews with them in the uh, in fanzines, uh, talking about why they release the records themselves, saying really quiet saying things in a similar way that. You know, crass have become more well known for but saying things in very different and also being critical of the kind of politics of anarchism as their politics were slightly more to the left and so you get this whole debate going on in fanzines about punk's meaning its politics its place within the broader culture as well as the enthusiasm of someone just trying to record a great night out or a bad night out or whatever it might be
0: yeah, I mean I love the, the cut and paste nature mm-hmm. of them which seems to have gone now that we can all present things to quite a professional degree what with online presentations. Yeah,
1: I was talking to Russ Bestley who uh, writes a lot about punk design and what DIY, beca- well his bugbear at the moment is DIY has become too much of a kind of an easy phrase to use. It doesn't take into account that a lot of the people who made some of these punk covers didn't really do it DIY really. They were trained designers but also how that DIY look and how punk punk's kind of aesthetic developed was driven by the necessity of the tools you had to hand. It had to look like that. It wasn't always a choice, it was done as a part of a, a necessity. That's what you had to hand, you know. So there's a kind of a kind of two way thing that it's become now a generic kind of punk aesthetic, isn't it? Everyone knows let's make a punk record cover. It's got to have cut-up lettering on it and it's got to have this on it. At the time, it was a slightly more oh, yeah. organic it's, process.
0: Most you it? could do. You didn't have access to technology. Absolutely. So, yeah, it's yeah.
1: printed on that, bit of, on that paper and there's only 20 copies because that's all I could do.
0: Yeah, yeah. So lastly, uh, you grew up in Norwich. Mm-hmm. Um, how much did punk and new wave permeate there and what were the key venues?
1: Norwich... Out of the way we had a few bands that kind of tickled the music press so people like the Higsons and maybe Serious Drinking got a bit of coverage and stuff like that but generally it was a very kind of closed local scene people picked up on it a couple of people saw the Pistols in 76 and a few more went and saw them when they played Christmas Eve in 77 few pubs began to take the punks in a club called the Jackard opened up in 79 opened by a chap called John Vince and the DJ John Fry who uh, started putting it on punk nights having earlier done it in a pub called the Wallpack where they kind of the local punks would would gather bands formed, fanzines formed Bax Records was the big thing there was a record shop called Ace which was really important for a lot of the early punks getting their stuff and Ace merges with another record shop and becomes Bax Records and Bax becomes part of the cartel part of the whole kind of rough trade distribution thing and that's when I in the early 80s when I was old enough to start buying records that's where I'd go with my pocket money to buy one of the many singles that were up on the wall behind the counter and you kind of look for something that looked interesting you'd read about in the music press and or a fanzine to to buy so yeah Jacquard was important as a club Bax was important as a record shop after Aces bands were uh, disruptors were our kind of anarchist Band. What else was going on at Norwich Arts Centre? Yeah, there was. It was quite a vibrant little scene. The Gothic Girls, who uh, used the word Gothic before it became a a label, but were very much part of that dark aesthetic. Yeah, so it was kind of vibrant, little hidden away scene. It did what punk did all over the country. Really, kind of made things come alive a bit.
0: And what are your favourite sort of albums and singles from the the period that you cover in the book? Would you say?
1: Probably changes. Probably changes all the time. I think if I kind of fall back at the bands, I always immediately think of when I think of what was great about punk beyond the, the Sex Pistols. I just thought, I just loved how they just opened up this space for other people to kind of come through, and I, I like the whole shtick of the, the the Pistols. I like Rotten's lyrics. I like the noise they make. I like Jamie Reid's artworks. I like all the nefarious doings on in in the background and the stories about them. But beyond that, I, I guess. Bands like ATV, Subway Sect, Buzzcocks. I really like Joy Division. Were a very important band for me. I like, I liked all of it really. At the time, I saw it as a conversation really, where you had different people taking on this, uh, coming into this cultural space and saying different things. And I very much followed the kind of John Peel line of things, and that I was quite happy to listen to the Cockney Rejects, and then the Swell Maps, and then Crass, uh, and. What's another good example? The pop group or something like that. I could quite happily listen to Sham Sixty Nine and Throbbing Gristle in the same afternoon. And it, for me, they, these were things that were were coming from different places, but engaging in some some kind of conversation or similar things about what the world was like at that that particular time. So I I kind of find all of it interesting and enjoyable in lots of in lots of different ways. Really, I'm faffing because. Uh, I don't want to get pinned down. That's right. <laughs> my favourite favorite record.
0: Well, I think we'll leave it at that. But cheers, Matt. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Absolutely, Absolutely. fascinating hearing about the book. And I'll tell the listeners a little bit more about how to order it and mm-hmm. where to buy it in the bit at the end. So mm-hmm. anyway, thanks again for your time. That's all right. Thanks for cheers. asking me to Well, there you have it. I'm sure you'll agree that it was a real privilege to hear from Matt Worley about the book, which I should remind you again is published by Cambridge University Press and is entitled No Future, Punk, Politics and British Youth Culture, 1976-1984. to 1984. In the pod I also mention another book, this time edited by Matt alongside Nigel Copsey, Tomorrow Belongs to Us, The British Far Right Since 1967, which was published in the Routledge Fascism and the Far Right book series. Also, I should remind you of the first three of our interview pods with promoter Simon Bailey of Future Perfect, Darkland's DJ Steve Reynolds and head honcho of Oddbox Records, Trev McCabe. All are well worth a listen, as is episode 28 of the regular pod where myself, Terry DeFellan and Del Mantle picked over the carcass of the new musical Express following its demise. We'll be back soon with more interviews in episodes 29 and 30. listening. You can interact with the team at, at @soundingboard69 on Twitter and Facebook.